morning from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Trifocus. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, and had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guide me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going down along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from, from being baptized? And, the, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Last verse. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate you reading that for us. It's a little longer than usual, but uh, I wanted to get that whole picture in front of us, and I didn't want to do it, so uh, <laughs> Jim, Jim reads well. He ought to be a librarian or something. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> and with that in mind, if, as, as if we haven't read enough already, if you will, turn over to Matthew 13. I want to read three verses from Matthew 13 to set the stage for our discussion this morning. As Grady Nutt used to say, turn over in your Bibles. To Matthew chapter 13. Forty-four through forty-six. And the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I think these three verses tell us that the gospel message, the good news of Christ, is a treasure. It's like a pearl of great price. It is like a treasure that's been hidden in a field. And anyone who finds it and takes advantage of it will be blessed by it. Take those thoughts, if you will, for a moment, and let's move forward, fast forward 1,900 years to where Dr. Williamson, who was a Canadian geologist, had been driving along a rain-soaked road that led through Tanzania's backcountry. Suddenly, his Land Rover hit a mud hole, as we used to call them in North Georgia, and he didn't know how deep it was, and it sank to its axles in muddy mire. 
pulling out a shovel, he began to dig that four-wheel drive out of the mud. And after some time, he uncovered an interesting-looking pink stone. Well, being a geologist and naturally curious about rock formations, he, of course, picked it up and began to examine it. And the more mud he removed, the more excited he became. And he could hardly believe what he saw. When he finally had the stone clean, he realized that it was a huge diamond. Any diamond would have been a surprise. But he had found the now famous pink diamond of Tanzania. And that muddy stone sparkles today in the royal scepter of Britain. And Williamson is world-renowned for having found, accidentally, that precious stone, even though he did that through happenstance. I think it's interesting that a geologist found that diamond. Maybe it's because his eye was more trained and attuned to that kind of thing. But in a similar way, in the text that Jim just read, the Bible tells us of a treasurer who found a treasure. And I want us to look at that for a few minutes together this morning. Jesus compared a sinner who learns the gospel to a person who finds that great treasure, as we've just read. And the truth is beautifully illustrated by this Ethiopian treasurer here in Acts the 8th chapter, who found the gospel treasure on a lonely road leading back from Africa to Jerusalem. The question I want to pose as we began the study this morning is, why, of all the people in the world, did the treasurer find that treasure that day? Dr. Williamson would certainly admit that he found that pink diamond of Tanzania through luck and mere happenstance. But I want to submit for your consideration that it was more than just chance. It was more than just happenstance that created the wonderful situation we read about in our text. Allow me to make three observations about what we find in that text. The first observation is simply this. The treasurer was willing to look for something more. He recognized that there was something missing in his life, and he was willing to try to find what that was. That's the spiritual desire that every person on the planet needs to have. You may remember one of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 is, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and then the Lord's promise commensurate to that is, and they shall be filled. But the hungering and thirsting for righteousness is requisite before anyone will find what God would have him to look for. This Ethiopian man had traveled 1,500 miles one way, and he was reading his Bible on the way home. Can you imagine traveling that far just to go to worship, and on the way home, you're still reading your Bible? Because he, because he was a eunuch, he hadn't even been allowed into the temple proper during the ceremonies, according to the Old Testament regulations found in Deuteronomy chapter 23. You could say that he rode 3,000 miles to go to worship just to wind up sitting in the foyer, because that's basically what he did. But he knew something of the Bible, and he wanted to know more. He was like a man at sunrise, tilting his manuscript to catch the first light. And as he read Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus, he was catching the first rays of the rising sun of Christianity. Allow me to ask a question, and this is really a question of application, even though we haven't walked all the way through the story. Who will find God's treasure today? And the answer obviously comes from Scripture. Anybody who wants to can. Whosoever will, John said in the book of Revelation, let him come and take the water of life freely. Anyone who's looking for it can find that treasure and can take advantage of it. I remember growing up, we played all the usual childhood games. I remember when my cousins would come over and spend the entire summer with us and and we would shoot one another playing cowboys and Indians or maybe playing army. 
But then inevitably, there would be the game of hide and seek. And I also remember that it kind of depended upon the participants as to what the exact rules of that game might be. But uh, uh, while the rules would change from time to time, the basic gist of the game was, was always the same. One person would be selected to be it. I don't remember how that selection process, I, I imagine it was a, an extensive recruiting process. But anyway, somebody was chosen to be it. And then the last person, as you would go hide, the last person to be found would be the winner. Since nobody wanted to be it, that role was usually not played with a great deal of enthusiasm. In fact, sometimes it would give up the game and just go to the house and leave everybody in the places where they had hidden. And only those, and this is the point, uh, those who were zealously searching for those in hiding would be victorious in that childhood game. Again, God's treasure is available to everybody. But it requires a careful and a diligent study of God's word to find it. Here's how Paul expressed it in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15. Study, this is the King James Version, study to show yourself approved unto God. Some versions, like the ASV, render that, be diligent to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, handling aright the word of truth. So Paul is acknowledging in that passage that diligence is necessary for a person to study, to glean from God's word all that a person needs to know in order to be pleasing to God. The way of, to heaven is, is clearly revealed in these holy scriptures. But it takes some careful reading of the roadmap to determine the way God said for, for all of us to go. Jesus said that the scriptures, that is specifically the Old Testament, testified of him. But it's interesting, even though we know that the Old Testament is pointing us toward Jesus, the theme of the entire Old Testament, someone has said, is someone is coming. The theme of the Gospels is someone is here. And the theme of the rest of the New Testament is someone is coming again. And that's pretty accurate. But even though the Old Testament speaks about Jesus, his name is not found there. And in John chapter 5, verse 39, you may remember he was speaking to some skeptics who weren't sure about who Jesus really was. And he said, you search the scriptures. For in them you think that you have eternal life. And notice this last statement, and they are they which testify of me. That is, these people were diligent in their study of scriptures, but then they were willing to ignore the reality of what those scriptures were revealing to them, and that is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that you've been waiting for for all of these centuries. He taught in the parable so that those only those that were sincerely interested would find eternal life. And he talked about the reason why in Matthew chapter 13, verses 13 and following. He said that the path that leads to eternal life is straight and narrow and is going to be found only by the comparative few, Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. And that's because we don't find that path that leads to heaven by a casual pass through the scriptures, but only by a diligent search. And that's one of the reasons why from this pulpit and in other places in this good church, we're encouraging people to be people of the book. To get into the scriptures, to not just open the Bible when we're here together corporately in our worship, but to spend some time every day in the word of God, to see what God's word has to say. Because it not only tells us what we need to do in order to become a Christian and to have our sins washed away, but that's just the beginning. It then tells us the rest of the balance of the New Testament is telling us how we need to live as Christians in order to be pleasing to God and have the most positive impact upon the world and to lead others to Jesus Christ. You'll note that there's no single passage that teaches us all that we need to do in order to be prepared for eternity. But we have to study 
in order to put all of those pieces together, in order to be able to know the truth that makes us free. You remember the passage in John 8, 32, don't you? Where Jesus said to those people and to us, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Remember that verse 32 is preceded by verse 31, where Jesus said, if you continue in my words, then are you my disciples indeed. May I point out that continuing in God's word is necessary before we will then be able to access and be blessed by the truth that will make us free. So continuing in his word is necessary for spiritual emancipation. It's what the Lord wants us to know. We ought to all endeavor to work harder to find, to understand, and to observe God's will for us and to become his forever children. That's one thing that we can learn, I think, from the eunuch's example. A person may have to dig out from under denominational teachings. He may have to dig out from under human traditions in order to be able to finally know the truth that will make him free. I would like to be able to say that all that we have to take into consideration these days is just the pages of our New Testament. But we really have to dig out, of a, out from under a lot of misinformation that's out there in the world today. If you don't believe that, just go home and turn on your television set. There's a lot of messages that are claiming to be from God that can't be found in the pages of this book. I would like to be able to say otherwise, but that's the reality of the situation. And I know that there are a lot of folks today, like this treasurer that we're reading about, who read their Bibles on the way home from church services and wonder why what they just experienced in those worship services cannot be found in the pages of their Bibles. And those people are good-hearted, well-intentioned people, and they need to find some answers. And if you're one of those people here this morning, please keep listening. We should never, listen to me church, we should never be satisfied with a religion that is less than what we find in scripture. Now we can do better. And I'm here to announce that Christ's church does exist today and you and I can be a part of it. Here's a second thing we learned from the treasurer. He was will willing to listen to another viewpoint. I think that tells you a great deal about the man's character. The Bible says that when Philip gave the treasurer an opportunity to learn more about God's word, that uh, he was not rebuffed. The man didn't say, oh, do I look ignorant? Why do you want to help me? No, he was more than willing to ask Philip for, for help and assistance in understanding what he was reading from Scripture. He was humble enough to admit to a complete stranger that he did not understand what he was reading. In fact, the question was, how can I? except some man should guide me. Now note, he could have told this preacher who was intruding on his private Bible study, you need to get lost. But if he had done that, this man would have stayed lost, spiritually speaking. What was the eunuch reading? Well, it's a testament to inspiration. The Bible actually tells us. And the Bible says the place, this is verse 32 of Acts 8, the place of the scripture which he read was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. The eunuch listened as Philip showed how Jesus' death on Calvary and the resurrection from the grave fulfilled Isaiah 53's prophecy, the very prophecy that the eunuch had been reading. Jesus, according to Scripture, was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You may not know this, but a goat that was killed in the traditional manner, especially one to be sacrificed to God under Old Testament regulations, could send out, at least from what I've read and researched, could send out a, a blood-chilling cry that could be heard a mile away. 
Now, that's a goat. But Jesus isn't likened into a goat. He's likened into a sheep. And when a sheep is led to the slaughter, it doesn't make a sound. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus died. You and I know that Jesus submitted to the outrages perpetrated against him meekly, and he offered no more resistance than that of a lamb that was being led to the shearer or even to the slaughter. The text that the treasurer was reading also says in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Does that square with scripture? Absolutely. The verdict of Jesus' Roman judge was innocent. But then Pilate gave in to the Jews and changed that sentence to death by crucifixion. And then Isaiah asked this question, who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? How could one describe a generation of people so blind that when the Messiah finally did come, they did not recognize him as being God's son. In fact, they, they took him and they murdered him. They, they nailed him to a cross. They crucified him. Jesus' premature death was prophesied, I remind you, more than 700 years before he was even born. That's why someone who has written a commentary on the book of Isaiah said, surely the person who wrote Isaiah 53 was sitting at the very foot of the cross. By the way, this isn't what the treasurer had been taught in the worship service that he had just left. He was worshiping under Old Testament regulations. He knew nothing of this Jesus. He learned the truth because he was willing to consider another viewpoint. And what about us? You know, there are too many religious discussions that end with slammed doors and closed minds, with raised voices and lowered esteem for a friend, with clenched fists and closed Bibles. Are we willing to calmly and carefully investigate another viewpoint. But you may be saying, but I, I believe this my whole life. This is what my family has always, it's, this is what they taught me. This is what I was trained to believe all of my life. Does it square with scripture? That's the question we're asking. Do we do our own thinking or do we just accept what the preacher or maybe the friends, our spouse, or maybe even our parents have told us that the Bible says? Now, now watch this very carefully. Truth, I believe this with all my heart. Truth never suffers from honest investigation. If we were right in the beginning, then more study of God's word will only confirm that we were right. But if we were wrong in the beginning, a study, a careful study of God's word will help us to rectify our situation before judgment day comes. And I believe that's what we're all looking for. Here's a third thing that we can learn from this treasurer. He was willing to leave his past as treasurer for his queen and for his country, he was without a doubt an intelligent and a very industrious man. His religion was good. He had served God faithfully under the old law. He was comfortable with it. It had served him well. He knew its customs. He understood its theology. And he had, it had taught the morals that had certainly benefited his life and given him parameters and regulations that would help him to be a good citizen in whatever land that he lived in. But now here Philip had joined up and was riding along with him in the chariot. And he was telling him something that he had never heard before. He was suggesting that he needed to give that Old Testament religion up for something that was better. It no longer pleased God. It was powerless to grant salvation. Maybe even at least the theme, the idea of Colossians 2.14 was communicated somewhere in that session where Paul, of course, in writing the letter to the Colossians said that the old law was 
taken out of the way and nailed to the cross. When Jesus died, we're no longer living under the law of Moses. Now the Christian era and the New Testament law is being the regulation. What, what went through his mind as Philip was talking to him that day? Do you, re, do you ask yourself that question when you read Acts 8? What was going through his mind? I mean, there had to have been a hundred different thoughts that was racing through his mind as Philip began to talk to him about this, this Jesus person. And, and maybe this man was also thinking not only about, is any of this or is all of this true, but what do I do about it? How do I make my life and my heart and my soul right with God? And do I realize that when I do this, I, I may offend my friends? I, I have to change my religion. I may have to go against everything my family has always believed. I have to start over. I have to admit that I've been wrong. Nonetheless, the Bible record says he desired to please God more than he wanted to please any man. And he was willing to do what a lot of people in our day are unwilling to do, and that is to give up a false religion or even a sinful pleasure. Mark this down. In heaven, he will never regret his decision, nor will we ours if we make the same noble decision that this man made in Acts 8. Philip evidently, somewhere in the course of this discussion, said something about the subject of baptism. Even though if you read Isaiah 53 from beginning to end, you'll know that it's not mentioned there because baptism was not a part of the Old Testament regulation, but only of the new. And yet Philip apparently said something, brought up the subject of baptism, because the eunuch interrupted this traveling Bible class to point out that they were passing a place that was a suitable place for baptism. In fact, the words were, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now, since that was an arid region, he may have thought, if I don't ask now, we may not pass another lake or a river or a body of water until after this man leaves. You see, the eunuch realized what he needed to do to be saved. And he did it with some sense of urgency. I, I, nothing is going to keep me from doing what God wants me to do. That's the kind of heart this man had. And I want to do it right now. Here's water. What's keeping me from being baptized? I want to make one point of application, and this lesson will be yours. According to the book of Acts, and I'm going to say this as diplomatically as I know how, something is wrong today when people claim to preach Jesus, and yet when the hearers of that message do not then request baptism. You see how this happens here in the book of Acts. This man preached Jesus to him, the record says. And in the course of that, he preached the necessity of baptism so that the eunuch said, I want to do that. Even though apparently, at least according to the printed record, Philip didn't say, now here's water. No, it was the eunuch who suggested it. Here's water. What's keeping me from being baptized? If we're preaching Jesus today, the natural conclusion to that message will be, I want to do what God would have me to do. I want to be baptized. I need to have my sins washed away. And I know that Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and following teach that it's in baptism where I contact the blood of Jesus Christ. I die in his death. I'm raised to walk in newness of life with all of my sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. I'm just asking, how can any man preach the gospel and answer the question, what must I do to be saved without giving the answer that Jesus told us to give? And I remind you, 
Now, what he told us is recorded for us in, in Mark 16, 15, and 16. Go preach the gospel, he said, to every creature. Well, Lord, what will we tell them? Tell them this. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. That's how simple it is. Simple, but not necessarily easy. Because sometimes, just like this eunuch, we bring a lot of baggage to the baptistry with us. And we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to go against what my, my family has always believed? Am I willing to, to be ostracized maybe even by my friends because I'm no longer going to do the worldly things that I've been doing with them? These, the, the coin of spiritual price must be paid. And the eunuch was willing to pay it. I want to end with this observation. This treasurer, obviously being a treasurer for a prominent queen, was a man of some means. And that means when Philip joined up with him and taught him as they were riding along in the chariot that day, he was already a wealthy man. But when he left this scene, he was a whole lot richer. Because now he was a child of God. His sins had been washed away. God had wiped every transgression in this man's life out of his book of record, they would never again be mentioned. Even when he meets God in judgment, those sins will never, ever be mentioned from the lips of God again. And in the last few, how, how appropriate that inspiration, the Holy Spirit has ended this account this way. The last glimpse that we get of this treasurer is a man with a smile on his face. Because the Bible says, and he went on his way rejoicing. And you'll rejoice too if you become God's child this day while we stand, while we sing.